stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Thanks for joining us here on this Monday as we watch uh, a few different stories playing out today. It's been interesting. Uh, a day after a uh, pretty awkward interview aired on 60 Minutes about practices at Facebook. Big story today is that both Facebook and Instagram are down, have been down for some time. No one's really quite sure why or what's going on. We'll talk more about that this afternoon. Also, later on today, we're going to talk about the uh, so-called Pandora Papers uh, in another uh, trove of documents uh, showing how the uber wealthy and powerful are, are shielding assets uh, through offshore accounts, etc., uh, that's getting a lot of attention today. We're going to talk about that later on today. And what sort of tax loopholes exist that allow these practices in the first place? Canadians for Tax Fairness will join us to talk about that story. Obviously, watching the COVID situation here in Alberta today, what the weekend numbers tell us. And uh, today's the day that uh, some of that federal help, some of that outside help starts arriving here. So more on that this afternoon. Your calls, your text here, 403 now, it was two weeks ago today that Canadians voted in a federal election, a federal election that more or less returned the status quo to Ottawa. But it also illustrated uh, an important shift that's occurring in terms of the power dynamic in Canadian politics. Now, here in Alberta, I think we tend to view it as, you know, east versus west, or we tend to look at it in uh, provincial terms, you know, that certain provinces have say or have power. I think we're missing, though, what's what's actually been happening in the shift of power to the major cities in Canada. And it was something that the liberals were certainly focused on. In fact, they boasted about uh, their strategy that allowed them to win yet another minority government, despite losing the popular vote once again, because they focus on, yes, Toronto, yes, Montreal, also Ottawa, also Vancouver, even Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, the Liberals had something to show for those two cities. So what does it represent in terms of uh, changes in national politics, changes in policy making? What does it mean for Canadians outside of these major metropolitan centers? Well, our next guest wrote an interesting uh, piece about all of this. Ken Coates is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Coates, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Always good to be with you. Uh, so it's interesting because, as I said in the introduction, I mean, we tend to think of politics as being divided along regional lines, provincial lines. But how long has this shift toward, you know, municipalities, large municipalities and non-major metropolitan centers, how long has that been happening? Well, the provincial regional line has been our political shorthand for a long time. Yeah. And we've actually been a little bit lazy in sort of just, just accepting that as the status quo. This is Quebec or Alberta or whatever ha- happens. What you've actually been seeing over the last number of years, really going back to the conservative government of, of Stephen Harper, um, Stephen Harper's government will probably go down as the, the last government in Canadian history with the majority of his residents coming from small town and rural areas. And what happens now is that, in fact, for the Liberals uh, to win and for the Conservatives to win in the future, you actually have to break into these these urban strongholds, and and they run with uh, very different different issues. The issues are are urban and rapid trans uh, you know transportation, uh, housing prices, uh, urban design, things of that sort, recreational facilities. These things do not connect up with Swift Current or Red Deer. 
They don't connect up in the same way with Pouscoupe or with or with Prince George. Um, and and they, we're now seeing a country work in very very different spaces. And you'll re- realize too that the top six cities in Canada are responsible for almost all the job growth over the last decade. We've only had a, you know occasionally you get a sort of a small boom, a mini boom in certain areas. Uh, Fort McMurray certainly had this at different times in the past. But overall, uh, the cities are becoming the en- the economic engines of the country. Uh, they have almost all the wealth. They're attracting almost all the immigrants. Uh, they're attracting much of the overseas investment, which is no longer going to the resource sector. So, so Canada has been transformed, and, and the Liberal Party figured it out. Um, the Conservatives figured it out before then. You remember that Jason Kenney became famous, not, not just for being the Premier of Alberta under difficult circumstances, but he was really famous because of the fact that he reached out to the immigrant population on behalf of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not the first ones to see this, but in fact, Canadians are kind of oblivious to it. And you look and say, well, what, that's a strange election result. How do you win a majority when you actually haven't got access to the, to the, 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 the largest number of votes? Well, you do it strategically. You will focus on the cities. You find a common message that resonates with urban, urban dwellers. And quite frankly, you ignore much of the rest of the country. Yeah, so, well, and, and, and that's a key point, right? I mean, even smaller cities, and, and you give some examples uh, in, in the Peachy Road this week, you know, Waterloo, that's an important region, Kelowna, obviously, Moncton, Sherbrooke, Kamloops. There's a lot of smaller cities that are important in their own way, but there, there's such a big gulf here, isn't there? There, there really is, and you have to look at this in, in terms of where government investment goes. And Waterloo is a real outlier. And quite frankly, you know, if you're in, people in the GTA consider Kitchener-Waterloo to be part of the GTA, people in Waterloo do not consider it quite the <laughs> same way. But it's a relatively short short drive. It's certainly within the shadow of, of, of Greater Toronto. But look where the federal government innovation investment goes. If we actually see innovation, commercialization of science and technology as the future, you know, compare how much money goes into Grand Prairie or Red Deer to what goes into Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, and we've seen this, happen, we see this happening across the country. Um, watch the number of international students. They tend not to come to Brandon. Uh, they don't go to Prince George. They head to the big cities. And that's where they, re- that's where they reside after they finish um, university. So, so the, the balance is not only tipped already, but it's going to accelerate as time goes along. And, and we have a situation here where political parties are quite frankly going to have to have two completely different strategies. Um, you know, do you, just to use one example, uh, why did the Liberals decide to bring up gun control only in the middle of the last federal election? That is an urban issue. It's a concern in Greater Vancouver. It's a concern in Toronto, less so in Calgary and Edmonton. Big concern in Montreal, less so in Ottawa. But this basically, this is a reminder that the Conservative Party is the party of rural and small-town Canada, and the Liberals understand cities. And the Conservatives, by sort of jumping on the wall, we're going to sort of toy with the assault gun you know, you know, requirements and restrictions and things of that sort, reinforce the idea that they do not get the cities very well. And unless parties come up with a sort of a two-pronged strategy, they're really going to have trouble getting a, any kind of traction in, in, the, in the cities in this country. What does it mean then for you know, the rest of the country in terms of staying relevant and, and having concerns addressed by the federal government if so much of the focus is on what the major cities need? 
I think what has to happen in a way that, and this can be positive. It doesn't have to be a negative, you know, the cities are beating up on us and they're bad places. They're not bad places. Urban residents have exactly the same vote as everybody else. It's not a problem with the cities. What we need is we need small town Canada and particularly rural areas to band together, to discover that there's a bit of a common cause and to look for ways you can create networks between the small cities. And I see this in a couple of ways. You sort of have the mid, mid-sized cities, the Grand Prairies, the Left Bridges, the, the Red Deers have to connect up with the smaller comparable places, the Saskatoons, the Reginas, and, 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 and what else across the country as a whole. The small towns have to connect because they have a completely different role to play in a 21st century economy. And the northern isolated regions have to connect. And we need they need to sort of make a, a common pitch to Canadians as a whole. The cities have been hurt. They've got mayors screaming for about them. The mayors get together and talk about their priorities. They lobby collectively on for transit and things of that sort and for housing housing development issues and all that kind of stuff. They do a really good job of what they have to do. Small Smaller centers do not. The small towns do not. And the rural and northern areas do not either. And so unless those groups sort of coalesce and say, okay, the cities have their agenda. Here's our agenda. Here's our strategy. We want the parties to look at, at our concerns as well. There's nothing to stop a federal government, a national party, from responding to more than one constituency. They've done that a long time. with a friend who could go to Quebec and Alberta or British Columbia at the same time. So it's not, a, it's not an insurmountable problem, but you need a coherent voice coming out of those smaller centers. And we do not have it, but we certainly do have it from the cities. Yeah. And the political clout of these cities, it's not just that, that the federal parties are, are really trying to court voters in the big cities, but the mayors of these big cities have become really powerful political players in this country, haven't they? Oh, I think they're, they're equal to most of the premiers, if not almost all of the premiers. It's always hard to remember this, but Toronto has the fifth biggest government in Canada. You know, it's a very large city, and that doesn't include the GTA. That's only the city of Toronto itself. And so these are formidable uh, powerhouses. You know, there's an argument being made in different circles from time to time that the GTA should become its own province. And the rest of Ontario should sort of go a different sort of way. They certainly have different agendas. So absolutely right. The mayors are formidable uh, forces in Canadian politics. Uh, we see a really interesting effort being made before every election to try to get the big city mayors to sort of step aside and, and run for national office. Uh, they don't do that. They haven't done that very often. Why would you? Why would you go be a sort of a, a symbol in the, in the federal cabinet rather than being a real powerhouse at the city level? And we look at people like Kennedy Stewart who went from being an NDP MP in British Columbia to being the mayor of Vancouver. He stepped down from his MP job so he could run for the mayor of Vancouver, where he's having way more impact as a political leader than he ever could have hoped to do on the backbenches of, of, of the federal caucus. I mean, is, is this trend unique to Canada? We're we seeing this in other countries, too. What you, what you see in other countries is this urban-rural uh, urban divide. <clears throat> in Alberta, or sorry, sorry, in Australia, for example, you know, the eight biggest cities there are dominate the economy, dominate society in a whole bunch of ways. We haven't yet seen the, divi- the political divisions that we're seeing in Canada. We haven't seen one party come out very dramatically and sort of conquer the whole, the whole area. We do see it a little bit in some of the places in Europe uh, where sort of the, the cities tend to be sort of more left-leaning and the countryside tend to be more small-c conservative, but nothing quite as dramatic as we've seen in Canada. Canada. Um, and it's, it's because the political parties have, have understood this. Uh, the Harper government really made a real effort with the new Canadian uh, population. Mm-hmm. And that's the outlier in Canada, is that almost all 
the new Canadians end up in the big cities, even if they don't migrate to to uh, don't migrate to the big cities right away. They often re-migrate there. So you get people coming into Saskatoon, or the people coming into Halifax, and then two or three years later they move to the larger centers. And the new Canadian population is going to really drive a lot of the political process in this country in the coming years. Um, the parties that figure this out. Jason Kenney and, and Stephen Harper did, and they've they lost that message. Uh, the Liberals have certainly figured it out. Uh, the NDP has really surprisingly not got their handle on this one quite 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 as well yet. Um, are, are going to be the parties that grab national attention? We'll leave it there. Some fascinating insight, Ken Coates. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. You're always welcome. Take All care. All the best. Uh, that is Ken Coates. He's among senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute. He's a professor in Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shiyama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, also a fellow with the Royal Society of Canada. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Uh, you can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Plenty still to get to in this uh, hour, but uh, off the top here in this hour, I want to talk about five years after the Panama Papers, now comes the Pandora Papers. Uh, yet another massive leak of secret offshore accounts belonging to the global elite. Uh, the uber rich and powerful. This is uh, once again another massive uh, journalistic undertaking. More than 600 journalists from 150 media outlets in over 100 countries under the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists have been working on this story. Millions of pages of documents. And essentially it's showing how the uh, super rich, the super powerful are able to use offshore accounts, secret accounts uh, abroad to essentially shield their assets. Investigation also shows how banks and law firms deal with offshore providers to create complex structures. Now, American trust providers took advantage of some states' laws that encourage secrecy to help wealthy overseas clients hide money to avoid taxes in their home country. And I think ultimately, maybe that's what it comes down to here. It's not about necessarily bashing the rich, complaining that, that people have a lot of money. It's whether they're paying their fair share. You know, most of us, we go to work, we get a paycheck, uh, our taxes come off, right? We, we pay our taxes. We earn a certain amount. We pay tax on that amount. So the idea that uh, those with um, an abundance of riches are avoiding paying taxes, I, I think is, is offensive to a lot of Canadians. So is this the byproduct of some, some tax loopholes? You know, five years ago when the Panama Papers first dropped, there was all kinds of talk about cracking down on this stuff. Did that happen? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on this uh, latest leak of, of documents, uh, D.T. Cochran joins us, an economist uh, with the group Canadians for Tax Fairness. D.T., thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So, I mean, it feels like, you know, we're going through this all over again. Has anything really changed since 2016 here? There have been some changes. There have been moves uh, at the international level to try to alter the, the, the tax landscape to create more fairness. Um, unfortunately, there's been much foot dragging um, and a lot of very reasonable suggestions that have been made 
by, uh, for example, the OECD, um, hardly a bastion of, of radical economic thought, uh, have not been followed through on. And Canada has actually been a significant laggard on this front. So, for example, while some of our allies have implemented country-by-country reporting uh, disclosure, where we see how much tax um, uh, companies from their country are paying in different in different jurisdictions where they operate, Canada has, has failed to do the same. And that is part of this overall package of tax avoidance that the biggest companies and the richest individuals are able to exploit in order to make sure their assets continue to grow faster than the assets of the rest of us. Right, and we should make it clear that for the most part, it appears that we're talking about lawful activity, whether it's right is a different question, and maybe it would be easier to crack down than if, if we were identifying you know, people who were, were breaking the law. Um, but that, that's, that's, I guess that's not what we're talking about here, is it? Yeah, the, the really serious issue is the fact that so much of this is seemingly legal. Now, where things get really difficult is that the, the letter and the spirit of the law has always been an issue, always been a thing to be navigated, and it appears that the ultra-wealthy who can afford to pay for powerful lawyers and expensive accountants, they really play with that boundary between the letter and the spirit of the law. So there will be some activities that are outright illegal. There will be many other activities that are of questionable legality. And then many, many, many that are purely legal, that our government should be moving to put an end to. Well, I mean, we live in a, in a globalized world, a globalized economy, and, and I get that, uh, you know, there, there are people who do business around the world who maybe earn money in different countries, and, and obviously none of that's illegal. It's not illegal to have bank accounts set up in other countries, but at what point do, does it start to cross the line? Where, where, where are the areas that we, we need to focus on here? So one of the big moves that the OECD is making, and Canada should be absolutely on this is trying to identify where revenue and profits are being made on the basis of actual economic activity. Because what is increasingly happening is that companies are able to move some of their revenue into low-tax jurisdictions, despite the fact that that's not where the actual economic activity is occurring. And that's taking place through this complex of shell companies, of different subsidiaries, that then the ultra-wealthy are able to get in on. They're able to take advantage of anonymity uh, provided by shell companies that make it possible for them to purchase assets, for them to move money in ways that sidestep different tax authorities to avoid making their proper tax contribution. So requiring disclosure about where revenue is actually being generated and putting an end completely to anonymous shell companies should be two of the first things that this government does. Right. So, and, and you know, despite the revelations from five years ago, even those kinds of, of simple steps we, we didn't do, what's your sense of why there is this inaction in Canada? I, I, I honestly... A little perplexed. We have currently have 
a finance minister until the, the, the last election. We had a finance minister who will likely go back to the position who wrote a book called Plutocrat. Christy Freeland understands as well as anyone how the rich are able to exploit certain legal loopholes, differences in jurisdictions to serve their interests. Why Canada has not stepped out as a leader on this issue and continues to be a laggard, I honestly have no idea other than money talk and moneyed interests are continuing to make sure that the government does as little as it possibly can. Does it also speak to to the difficulty here? Because it kind of feels like as as much as we can try to change our laws or crack down on this, that if you've got enough lawyers and accountants, you can stay a step ahead. One loophole closes, you you go find the other one. I mean, is is it just kind of that constant game of almost like whack-a-mole? Yeah, that that will that will always be um, an issue. And on another issue that we advocate for, a wealth tax, we're often told, oh, well, it's too difficult because the wealthy will always be able to hide their assets and avoid paying this tax. But it's strange that this excuse that uh, cracking down on law-breaking will be too difficult is only offered as a seemingly legitimate position when it comes to the super-rich. We don't accept the difficulty of trying to crack down on other criminal activity unless it's the ultra-wealthy that are doing it. So there are ways that we can change our rules right now that would make a significant difference, and we can continue to develop new means and methods to ensure that the ultra-wealthy aren't able to gain the system. And the longer we go without doing so, the more their wealth continues to leave us all behind, and then the more they're able to pay for these expensive lawyers, these expensive accountants, which then attracts even more people into these dodgy service-providing industries. Why do we have so many people who are accepting paychecks to do this kind of service? So thankfully, one step that the government uh, is hopefully going to finally make is really increasing investment in the CRA um, to be able to, to investigate some of the the tax avoidance measures that are being used. There are a lot of people with the knowledge um, who do want to make sure that everyone pays their fair share. We just need to be providing them with the tools to be able to do so. Do we have any idea, you know, if we look at what this could potentially mean each year to to the government's bottom line and the amount of revenues that that governments have, because this is where it becomes very relevant for for Canadians, right, in terms of what governments are able to spend on programs or how much, you know, we need to pay in taxes each year to to pay for government services. That that equation would change considerably if, you know, there were billions of, of dollars all of a sudden showing up in government coffers. But do we know? So there's a wide range of estimates on how much is lost to various forms of tax avoidance. But one of the most respective, most respected outlets for this is the Parliamentary Budget Office. And they estimated that Canada loses about $25 billion a year to international tax avoidance. If we were, if we were to close some of the most egregious loopholes, we could almost certainly increased government revenues on the order of $10 billion a year. 
that's a, a national pharmacare program. That could provide the, the pharmaceuticals that way too many Canadians have to go without. That could provide that for everyone simply by closing a few of these loopholes and restoring a little bit of fairness back into the system. So those billions of dollars are providing pharmaceuticals to people who currently have to go without rather than going to pay for more lawyers, more accountants to avoid the taxes in even more sophisticated ways. All right, much more at uh, taxfairness.ca. We'll leave it there, uh, DT. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate your input on this. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Uh, DT Cochran's an economist uh, with the group Canadians for Tax Fairness. So they were saying this five years ago. They're saying it again now. we got to close, close these loopholes, which maybe is easier said than done. And, you know, the, the smart, wealthy people with their smart lawyers and their smart accountants uh, will figure out where to go next. And you know, when you have a, a globally connected economy, there probably will, will always be some kind of loophole. Now, that's not necessarily an excuse for inaction here. And yeah, ultimately, end of the day, there's, there's a lot of money the government should be collecting that they're not. And I, I get that, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to have sympathy for governments or the tax collectors. But ultimately, you know, we're, we're the, the easy catch here. You know, the folks who don't have the lawyers and the accountants. Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rod Breganridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Much more to get to uh, on the program here today. 403-974-TALK is the number, 974-8255. Also more time for your phone calls coming up as well. But up the top in this hour, I want to talk about uh, the business uh, of movie making, uh, the film industry here in Alberta, which, uh, you know, certainly seems to be thriving both in terms of the big productions coming here, but, but also what's being created uh, here in Alberta, right here in Calgary, in fact. Uh, and uh, this gets to our next guest, who's got his uh, debut feature film. It is uh, screening tonight. Landmark Cinemas right across Canada, as a matter of fact, tonight. Lands on video on demand tomorrow. It is uh, a story that was uh, filmed here in Calgary, Queen Elizabeth High School. Uh, Andrew Fung, of course, Calgarian uh, of Kim uh, Kim's Convenience fame, stars in this film. And as mentioned, uh, Calgary's own Ted Stenson, son of a pretty well-known writer himself. Uh, This is his feature debut. It's already racking up uh, some awards at some film festivals. It is called Events Transpiring Before, During, and After a high school basketball game. Ted Stinson, uh, director of said film, joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Ted, congrats on this, and uh, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting what's, what's happening with movies right now. I mean, as mentioned, this is uh, launching this week in theaters, launching as well on, on video demand. Certainly, pandemic has kind of disrupted not just the making of movies, but the consumption of movies as well. Uh, what, what do you make of it all, first of all? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. And, you know, for us, it was like kind of the last thing I did before COVID hit was, you know, finish the sound mix for this. So, oh, yeah. you know, we were we were pretty lucky in terms of timing. Um, uh, you know, and I think, I don't know, I mean, I think it's good and bad. And, you know, some of these like virtual film festivals, which we've been part of, um, you know, have been really great. And I think, you know, even for myself, like I have young kids and getting out to, to do stuff isn't always easy. So having the ability to just, you know, stream it from home is kind of nice. Um, you know, you're able to participate in things uh, in a totally different way. 
It is. And yeah, I think a lot of us have been consuming a lot more media at home, but there is still something about being in a movie theater. And as theaters have, have started to open back up, you know, we, we see that, that there is that, that pent up demand. People miss that experience, I think. Yeah, well, there's definitely something, you know, when you're in a theater, you see something big and loud. It's just a totally different experience. And, uh, you know, we've definitely, for my film, you know, pretty much missed out on that. So, I mean, it's um, exciting that, you know, Landmark is carrying it. And, uh, you know, that that's a pretty cool experience, um, particularly because uh, we're at screening in Calgary, uh, the Country Hills location. I, I pretty much lived there in high school, yeah. so <laughs> it's uh, it's very fitting. Um, well, and, uh, uh, yeah. well, tell us a bit more about the film because it is it is set in high school. I mean, it's it um, you know it invokes dazed and confused, perhaps as as a reference. But tell us more. What, what do people need to know about this movie? Yeah, I mean, the title's pretty pretty expo- self explanatory. <laughs> I mean, I. <laughs> I want, you know, it takes place uh, in one evening while a high school basketball game's happening, and it kind of shows, you know, all the various things that are going on in the school. Um, so for me, like, I, you know, I went to high school in Calgary at Queen Elizabeth, uh, where we filmed it, which was very cool to, to actually get to shoot it there. And, uh, you know, I played on lots of sports teams, um, and generally, you know, our teams were pretty bad. So, you know, I, I that's kind of partly what I wanted to show was this, you know, like not the sort of Friday Night Lights experience of high school sports, but, uh, you know, something that was a lot more sort of low key and <laughs> where the stakes were much, much lower. Um, you know, I, I guess I always thought there was something kind of funny about that, um, that kind of, you know, went completely against the grain of the, the stereotype for the high school sporting experience. For you personally, and, you know, trying to make a name in, in this industry and tell stories, why is it important to you to, you know, do it your way and, and do it here and tell a story that's, that's set in Calgary at your high school and, you know, has, has Calgary actors involved as opposed to, you know, running off and, and chasing the big dreams in Hollywood, for example? Well, you know, I think that it is really important to show, you know, regional perspectives. And I think especially, you know, with the high school basketball film, I mean, I'm going, you know, there's not that many that are probably set in Calgary, um, you know, but uh, certainly, you know, lots of people, you know, play high school sports in Calgary. And, uh, you know, that is probably different than playing high school sports in Texas or, you know, Vancouver or Montreal. So, you know, I, I think that, it is, you know, important and interesting. Um, you know, you just get a totally different perspective and there is a different sort of, uh, experience. And, you know, I think, you know, it is important to, to, yeah, to show those different things and, you know, not just kind of have a homogenous, uh, um, depiction of, of certain things. Cause you, you, I mean, you've worked in Hollywood, you've worked as a production assistant, you know, that side of it, you know, what these, these big productions are like. What did you take away from that experience? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, in some ways, I would say, like, if you are interested in getting into film, being a production assistant is, like, the worst thing that you could do. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, in some ways, you know, like, having experience working on some, you know, really big movies, like, I, you know, worked briefly on uh, Interstellar, and, you know, it was fascinating in some respects. But I think you also see, like, you know, not everyone is going to be making $300 million movies. And, you know, I think that it's important to have that experience to, I mean, see how something like that's made, but then also 
for me, you know, it, it's always made me feel like there's got to be another way of making films. Um, and especially in this day and age, like, you know, with the technology that has just become so sophisticated and relatively cheap, um, you know, it really is possible to make excellent, you know, world-class quality films, um, you know, uh, you know, at a much lower sort of price point. And I think that we were part of a, a telefilm program, the Talent to Watch program, um, and I think that the stuff that you're seeing out of there now, like, I mean, I've just watched a bunch of movies that were at TIFF and the Calgary Film Festival and uh, the Vancouver Film Festival. I mean, a lot of these, like, you know, first-time films that are coming out of Canada are really amazing. And, you know, even on a technical level, I think that they're as good as anything you'd see out of Hollywood or anywhere in the world. I mentioned, you know, the writing side of it, and, and you studied playwriting, you've done a lot of writing, you you come from it, uh, I, I think, honestly, your your father, Fred Stenson, uh, folks out here are probably familiar with a lot of his work. How did how did he influence you? And, I mean, you know, is, is writing still kind of your, your first passion? Yeah, I think that, for me, writing is maybe the most important thing or the thing that I feel, you know, most... Uh, excited about in a sense um and definitely you know my dad you know his sort of uh example you know seeing him work as an artist you know is definitely something that's had a big influence on me um you know and ironically he's actually he worked in the film industry for a little while and you know i have a lot of family that has worked in one you know fashion or another in the film industry so yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. In some ways, you know, like those can be cautionary tales. And, you know, it's definitely not an easy industry. Um, but, you know, I think that, yeah, having that kind of uh, example has certainly been important for me. Now, back to the film for a second. And, and this is a movie that gives a lot of young actors kind of their, their first break. But you've got quite an anchor in this film. Andrew Fung has obviously made a name for himself as one of the stars of Kim's Convenience. And then the Calgarian who's, who's kind of made it big. Did, I mean, do, do you guys go back as, as fellow Calgarians or, or how did uh, his involvement in this project come together? Yeah. So kind of right off the bat, um, Andrew was one of the people I thought of, you know, for this, for the, you know, role of the assistant coach, I really thought he would be perfect. Um, and I have some friends that are close with him. And so I got in contact with him and he was always really, um, you know, enthusiastic about the project and really helpful about, um, you know, pushing it forward. So yeah, he's kind of one of the first people in a way that was involved with this and, uh, you know, his participation certainly has helped a ton and, you know, he was great to work with and, uh, it was, you know, it was a really, really great experience shooting this. And I think especially, you know, for a lot of the cast that was younger, hadn't been in anything before, you know, it was, uh, an exciting experience and, uh, definitely having Andrew involved made it even more special now what's next for you well i'm working on a few things but i i'm actually working on a documentary about the alberta rat patrol which i'm pretty excited about (laughs) so that's another you know alberta story that i'm you know i've always kind of been fascinated by and uh and yeah i'm uh i'm excited to you know get more involved with that project too All right. Well, this movie is called Events Transpiring Before, During, and After a High School Basketball Game. Landmark Cinema starting tonight. Video on demand as of tomorrow. Ted Stenson, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
Yeah, thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's local uh, writer, filmmaker Ted Stenson. Uh, his first feature film, events transpiring before, during, and after a high school basketball game starring Andrew Fung. Landmark Cinema tonight, video on demand as of tomorrow. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.